Hi, I'm Stephanie Payne here with my partner, Daryl Radajak, and we are thrilled today because we get to talk about something absolutely amazing. <laughs> what do you mean amazing? We always talk about something amazing. Anyway, what, what we want to talk about today um, is probably going to be solid proof of yours and mine absolute nerdiness when it comes to wildlife. Yeah, because we needed more proof. And, and I'm glad you said yours and mine because you are just as nerdy, like totally the, the shaggy to my Scooby or peas in a pod, which actually the peas in a pod, that, that actually could be a pun because today's topic is genetic adaptations. Um, really though, it's, it's super, super cool. And honestly, it is the secret key to survival. Secret key. Um, what exactly do you mean? What, why is this so elusive or hidden? Like what, what are we talking about? What are genetic adaptations? Well, you know, they're not, they're not always elusive or hidden, but genetic adaptation, the, the simplest way to understand that um, is small changes that give individuals a proverbial leg up when it comes to competing for overall survival. <laughs> I know what we're talking about. We're talking about that, that fun little word called evolution and pretty much how things change over time. Um, the one thing that we need to talk about for this podcast is remember in nature, things are like never, ever static. They're always changing. And so how long it takes for some things to change, it varies tremendously, but it's well documented how they do change. And I hope we do a good job explaining that today. Yeah. And you, you said that word, the E. I know I didn't so. want to. Yeah, let's so let's be clear with our audience that we aren't here to, well, um, the problem is, let me just start over. The problem is when the word evolution is used, some people just turn off the old ears because it feels like it's against their religion or some people still view the word evolution as like these, um, these straight, hard and sometimes hard to swallow lines. So while yes, genetic adaptation is tied to the word evolution, we're, we're really going to try to stay in a specific lane and use some pretty intentional language because, you know, we're not telling people to ignore their religion. And we, we know that there aren't hard lines, you know, like that hard line of we have monkeys of today and people of today, and we are both just one generation of species off some common ancestors. It's, we, we are not here for that. So please, um, anybody who doesn't like the E word, please give us a chance to not offend you if the topic of evolution is touchy. It's not why we're here. Well, I, I will tell you, it, it definitely can be touchy. I've, I've gotten into many of discussions with folks when I erroneously brought up that word. But anyway, what we want to talk about today, um, these, these adaptations, these genetic adaptations, they're typically fairly small, aren't they? Um, yeah, yeah, they, they actually are. And like you just said, genetic adaptations. So we do early on want to make sure that we're differentiating that from behavioral adaptations, which are more like a learned behavior. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was thinking about this the other day when you, you brought up the topic of these genetic adaptations and, and differentiating between behavioral. Wouldn't, wouldn't our last podcast, I don't know, no, our second last podcast when we were talking about ecological vigilance would that more or less be a behavioral change? Yeah, sure. Because that's, that's definitely something that's a, a behavior that is, is adapting. So sure. But, 
but like like you said before my my big moment over the e-word daryl um these adaptations they are small they're small things over time um, some of the easiest examples can be things like small changes in the shape of a beak or a nose or ears um, density or color of fur over time and tons of other changes that like you said they proliferate over time <laughs> You keep bringing up over time. That's the thing with these genetic changes. A lot of people think that these changes like take thousands and thousands of years, but sometimes, sometimes they do. Sometimes they're really slow, but sometimes they can be crazy fast. And I was trying to think of a, a really good way to describe how, how much like genetic change or literally physical change we can see over time in in something that humans could relate to. So this probably isn't a great example, but I hope you follow along stuff. Cause I was thinking uh, about domestic dogs. And okay. so obviously, well, first off domestic dogs, they've been aided by selective breeding. We, we've humans have been uh, breeding certain traits in and out of those dogs. But I think the best way to describe how, how much things can change like a large mammal, like a dog, how much that could change is think about how long we've been, we've been breeding these domestic dogs. Now picture two different examples, picture a great Dane, one of those large honking, huge dogs, and then picture like a pug or a Chihuahua. And so you compare that great Dane to a Chihuahua, they look vastly different. Well, I, Actually, I think a pug might be a better example because the shape of the head of the pug is just crazy different than the Great Dane. <laughs> yeah. And so that has occurred literally over a couple thousand years. Now, I was trying to trying to think of something. I'm thinking, man, if if like a spaceship came down and an alien came out to capture different creatures of the Earth and they captured a Great Dane and they captured a Chihuahua. I can almost guarantee they're thinking those are two completely different animals. And, and, and those changes have literally taken place over, like I said, a, a few thousand years. So you can have some pretty drastic changes in a, a fairly short period of time. Yeah. So that I, I would agree if the, if I was an alien, if I actually, you know what, being a dog lover, I can say that I look at a great Dane and a Chihuahua and I have a hard time knowing that, oh, these are both Canis lupus familiaris. Well, I mean, yeah. yes, the, the brain in me knows that, but the rest of me is like, there's just no way. Yeah. And, and the, other, the, the other thing when I was trying to put my head together for good demonstrations, way, way, way back when, when I was in college, like 30 some years ago, um, maybe it wasn't that long, but we, I took a genetics class. And oh my gosh! Did did Gregor the, Mendel teach the, the, your genetics yeah. class? Yeah, he was he was in the class with me. <laughs> Any, anyway, our lab—I remember it because I hated it, but I remember it well because we literally had Drosophila, which is a genus of fruit fly, and, and their lifespan is only only one or two days, if I remember correctly. And, and you can literally through the course of that semester, you can see crazy changes of, of your, each student had a little population of fruit flies that they could experiment and change the way that fruit fly was looking like eye color or different things like that. So 
anyway, it's, it's real easy to see how there could be so much diversity in the entire animal kingdom because of these genetic adaptations. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you were mentioning just that with the fruit flies. So the reason why the, their whole lifespan of two days is a, a really big point is because that means that you can see so many generations over the course of, of yeah. a term or a semester. So, yeah. And of course, that's really the root of it. That's where we, we begin to get different species arising. Okay, wait, before we get into this, um, I knew we were going to talk species. So let's talk a little bit about speciation. And so there's, I, I will tell you, there's a lot of people that think species is like this. The, the difference in species is this hard and fast line. And I will tell you, in, in most situations, that's true. If you're comparing, if you're comparing like a songbird to a mouse, vastly different you can tell those are different species but say you're comparing like two different songbirds you, you could have like a a red-eyed vireo and a white-eyed vireo and a blue-headed vireo you could have lots of different species but they're really really close and those lines aren't always black and white there's a lot of gray in there so things begin to get a little blurry so what exactly defines a species Hmm. What defines a species? Well, so generally speaking, what, what really defines a species is a group of organisms that can exchange genes, or in, in other words, they can mate, they can breed. So um, while the pug and the dane, to go back to your alien uh, capture example, they look like two different species, we all know that they're not. Like I said, in, in our brains, we all know that those are still domestic dogs. They're both Canis lupus familiaris. Um, and we know that breeding between the two can happen even honestly that would probably be a little awkward for uh, both us watching and for the dogs but we know that it technically can happen so what exactly is speciation then so speciation is when enough of those genetic adaptations have occurred to make the that species really diverge or split so often things um in an environment might help contribute to that so um examples let me uh so imagine that you have two pockets of the same species and one pocket lives in one type of environment and the other lives in a different one. Uh, for, for ease, let's, let's back up and let's say we have two pockets of the same species that are geographically separated by a mountain range. So while the two pockets can travel between each other and continue to share that genetic material, it's really hard for adaptations to really take hold um, as quickly or as permanently that may develop um, if they couldn't exchange those materials, because again, keep in mind, they're coming from two completely different kind of habitats. So imagine though that something happens, like we'll say an earthquake and the way that these two populations interact uh, is suddenly closed. So now we're stuck with two pocket populations in two different environments with different resources and different environmental challenges, and they can no longer exchange that genetic material. So while they're breeding amongst their, their individual pocket, the genetic adaptations um, occur and can lead to what we call speciations because with enough genetic adaptations over time, you can actually end up with two dist distinct species um, and those species can no longer share that, that genetic material um, or breed what, what we would say is viable offspring. All right, nerd complicated. girl. <clears throat> yeah, complicated, what, what, sorry. Right, nerd girl. Wait, no, I'm going to quiz you. This, this is... This is one of those unexpected moments in our 
in our podcast. Do you know what that type of speciation is called when the populations kind of become geographically isolated and then they diverge? Do you recall Ooh, that? Or? You know, it's been a minute since I was in that class and I can tell it's you that. Been no, a minute. It's been way more than a minute. It's, I was going to say, it hasn't been as many minutes as you and Gregor, but it's been a minute. So fill us in. What is that? That is called allopatric speciation. So, so you I two, remember that word now. Thank you. Yeah. So you have two, like two groups of animals that are geographically separated. They, they were this, the same to begin with, but over time, because of that geographic separation, they evolved into different species. Now I, I'm going to, th this one's going to be a, a gimme for you. So the allopatric is when they're is when they're isolated. What would be when they diverge, even though they they're not geographically isolated? There's oh. allopatric and oh, you know see. lots of words. I what, what would do. go with allopatric? What would be the opposite of allopatric species? And I'm I'm going to have to go with sympatric. The same. It is sympatric, and and a good example of that. And forgive me if I'm boring you, but <clears throat> I was kind of kind of researching a little bit of this so say you we'll, we'll use fruit flies again and so say you have a certain species of fruit flies and they when, when they're laying eggs they lay eggs only on uh, apples and so over time time keeps going along and also in a couple of those fruit flies you know what i'm not going to lay my eggs on apples i'm going to lay my eggs on pears and so Although they're in the exact same location, they're doing things a little bit differently. Over time, those two species could, uh, or the, those two groups could diverge and form different species, even though they're, they're in the exact same uh, geographic area. So that's sympatric speciation. So like I said, anyway, just you, wanted... you are the, the, the shaggy to my Scooby. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Or the friend of my Anyway, go, go back to adaptation. Yeah, please, please. Cool. Let's go back to adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, so we're we're talking about like literally a mutation that occurs that gives gives a certain individual a leg up on other individuals, and so that that animal can then survive. But you have to understand that not all genetic adaptations or mutations, whatever you want to call them, they're not always beneficial, and so. <laughs> I, I laugh whenever I think about it because one of the greatest cartoonists ever was uh, Gary Larson. And do, do you recall that comic uh, where you have the, the two, the two animals and, it, and the one, it, I think it is a bear. Oh it, yeah. It is, the target. Well, they yeah, have bummer of a birthmark. Hal. Yeah. <laughs> and he had, he had a birthmark that was in the shape of a target on his chest. Yeah. I do remember that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, I had to throw that in because I, I love Gary Larson. And, and when I thought of that, thinking about, yeah, not all not all these mutations are beneficial. Thanks. And so yeah. th there definitely are some that are not advantageous. But those those tend not to be uh, displayed further on because those animals or or whatever creatures that that get those, um, I'd say, not so not so beneficial adaptations, they tend not to survive, especially yeah. if they got a big target on their chest. Exactly. Because so. animals that, that do have the benefit of, blah, 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 easy for me to say, the beneficial adaptations, they do get the upper hand in the environment. So um, certain small adaptation that might improve your survival rate 
um, as opposed to the genetic adaptations that decrease your survival rate, they're going to have more opportunity to breed. And the longer that you're around and the better opportunity that you have to breed, thereby you are literally breeding more of that trait that gives you that leg up into a population. So um, eventually then, of course, that, that trait would end up being common um, across that population. But I guess one thing we also have to remember, it's not like this process stops. It's not like it's just a one-time thing. It's, it's, it's constant. It's all the time going on. To use your pug and your Dane, um, imagine an environment where smaller animals have better chances of living into and then throughout adulthood. So obviously the pugs, the smaller ones, they've got the better rate of survival and if bigger animals don't. So eventually either the bigger animals, um, the smaller versions of the bigger animals are the ones that will eventually kind of take over um, and you completely lose the largest of the individuals or um, to, to start to get really complex. Another option that, that may end up happening is those, the bigger ones, the Danes in this case, would end up having much larger litter sizes to make up for the numbers. Um, so, but again, that, that can get kind of complex and I don't want to go into all that because I really do just, I'm, I'm kind of looking for those phenotactic, those, those visible things that we're talking about. All right. Well, let's stop talking about dogs. You you know, wildlife for you. We're always talking about wildlife. Yeah, so let's, here we are. let's use some animals that we're familiar yeah. with. Okay. So let's talk about um, Ursus arctos and um, Maritinus. Let's, let's, oh, let's wait, 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 wait. In, in, in English, what oh, Ursus arctos yeah. let's, is. Let's go ahead and talk about the, the polar bears and the brown bears, please. And it's a great example of that blurry line that you were talking about too, because these two can still technically breed and have viable offspring, even though it's it's super rare just because of their different geographies. But um, but this it it's, tells us that speciation is is super new with these two as well. So you are my bear guy um, all the time. So just tell me about those guys. No, you, you're right. Polar bears. Now we I, I always talk about polar bears and. Uh, brown bears, which a lot of people call grizzlies, but technically polar bears and brown bears, they're, they're, they're very different looking and behaving species. And obviously, yeah, there's, there's usually some uh, geographic differences. The polar bears love the, the Arctic. They're, they're on the ice hunting seals where the brown bears are more terrestrial type of animal. And so they, they really don't get together much, but believe it or not, when just on the periphery of that northern brown bear range and that southern polar bear range, you can actually get those two bears getting together. And if typically when you get some of the mixing uh, between two species, um, it's usually <laughs> it's that 3 a.m. last call in a bar where the pickings are <laughs> where the pickings are kind of scant there. So somebody anyway, was like Barry White playing out of his cell phone. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what what's going on. So if there's not any other animals to breed with, a grizzly bear might think that polar bear is kind of sexy there. And yeah, so, true. And and believe it or not, it has happened that I know there's there's always question on what it's called, whether or not it's a pizzly or a growler bear. Yeah. And I, I don't for the record, I don't I don't have a pony in that race. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think both names sound goofy, but whatever. But but those those two species, they, they haven't diverged so much that they can't share that gen- genetic information if they do get together. Yeah. And and so we do, again, we do know because before it happened in 
places where it might be a little more common, i.e. zoos. They have, they have seen that happen in zoos, but, or, you know, kind of human uh, spurred species or, you know, where they, they, so, but they actually do have proof that it does happen in the wild too. So yeah, I mean, Groller, Pizzly, which, whichever you prefer, Piz, I don't know, Pizzly, I think Pizzly sounds a little cuter, but you know, whatever. Anyway, (laughs) another adaptation, um, and a species that's again going back to our wildlife for you um, that and this one hasn't experienced speciation is the the melanistic or black jaguars. So um, melanism, as we, we have talked about before, is a beneficial trait in a very dense jungle being a, and of course, going back, melanism is the opposite of albinism. So albin, albino is all white, melanistic, all black. So in a deep, dense jungle, um, being all black melanism uh, is a beneficial trait, but it's a terrible trait for animals that would be more like in a prairie habitat where it would stand out then like a sore thumb and therefore have that decreased chance of survival. So that, that is literally why that trait is far more common in the jungle because the individuals in the jungle that are all black, they've got a better chance of, of surviving and breeding and thereby passing that melanistic trait on. If you just happen to have, um, the genetic soup mix perfect and you have a, a melanistic jaguar born out and more of a prairie situation, it's going to work against that individual, making it far harder to breed that trait in, in, into following generations. So you just took the last two minutes to say that there are no black panthers in North America. <laughs> I totally feel like we just took the last second to time travel into a, a past podcast there. So, and that was that was a great podcast. That's our second leading podcast as far as uh, our listeners go. Oh, so we're pissing them off in droves. Got it. Yes. <laughs> so, yes exactly. so talk to me though, because you know we we've made the point that beneficial adaptations um, that increase survival. And don't get me wrong. There's there's also a lot of genetic adaptations that go neither neither direction. They're not good nor bad. They sometimes show up. I mean, uh, it, or or they don't. You know. But the ones that are beneficial obviously get bred more into a population over time because of the survival rate. Um, but let's talk about something that's kind of interesting. We've mentioned in prior podcasts that, that both you and I are absolute lovers of animals and of wildlife, but we're also both hunters. Um, so talk to me for a second about that super touchy topic um, about those, those trophy hunters, those, those like antler hunters, the well, ones that are going I, out there. I argue this all the time because you and I, neither of us are trophy hunters. We, we'll shoot whatever animal um, we we choose to shoot. We're not going after like the, yeah. <laughs> Following all rules, all other things the same, yes. So, <laughs> so a lot of people are. Groundhog, Daryl. A lot. A lot yeah, thank you for clarifying. Yes, <laughs> we will only go after legal animals. Um but but there's this this concept of trophy hunting where the hunters are going after the biggest and the best mm-hmm. and, and that's yeah um there's lots of issues with that but one of the things if you know anything about deer hunting um obviously there's a lot of folks that love shooting those deer with the giant antlers and um i've been arguing for literally well over a decade probably the last 15 years at least that the more they target those animals those those genes survive less especially if they're targeting like the young deer that are still 
going to have bigger antlers and, and those are getting taken out of the population sooner, it's going to favor deer with smaller ant- antlers. And what I found so interesting one time when I was attending a, a deer meeting, it, it was a regional deer meeting. So we had representatives from many different states. And um, the gentleman from, he was a, a deer coordinator from Virginia, mentioned about this, this herd of deer that they had, I believe it was near the coastline, where the male deer, there was a couple of male deer had a freaky genetic adaptation where they were born without antlers. And so they were literally, they looked just like the female deer, but they were male. And the crazy thing, if you were, if you were to put those deer out in a population that's hunted, do you do you think that antlerless male deer or the male deer with the giant set of antlers which one is going to get killed sooner and in a hunted population the ones with i mean honestly if you have a the vast majority of hunters if they're staring at a deer with no antlers and even a deer with a moderate sized um, rack they're going to go for the one with a moderate sized rack so yeah that's going to be in a hunted population that's completely a leg up right there so so literally yeah literally what they're finding is is those those male deer with without the antlers or, or even with the smallest set of antlers they tend to live a lot longer. And when you live a lot longer, you have more opportunity to spread your genes each and every year. And so, yeah. so wait, 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 yeah. question for you. Because, you know, um, the whole point of the, the antler rack is the, is the big showing off of the, my body is so healthy and I am such a healthy individual that I have all this excess um, energy to spend on growing these worthless adornments on top of my head. Yeah. What their breeding goes down to, like how many well, of the girls I say that, are just like meh? I wouldn't say they're wor- worthless adornments because you you know how the male deer, the bucks, will get into fights with their antlers. Agreed. But what they're finding, yeah, what they're finding is, and, and they've done genetic studies. The biggest, baddest bucks aren't the ones doing the majority of the breeding. While well, they're, they're so too busy fighting. <laughs> Yes, that, that was like, that, that's how I survived. <laughs> everyone was kind of like, well, going back to deer, <laughs> going back to deer, as those, those big, big antler deer are going about their business fighting, those smaller antler bucks are like, hey, you're too busy fighting, I'm going to go out with the ladies. And so they have the opportunity to to breed and spread their genes, and so it's super interesting. I could I can talk about this um, for much longer than we probably ought to, but agreed. Anyway, yeah, but so okay. And honestly, to be honest, if we just sat here and chit chatted, we could come up with so many examples to easily demonstrate why effective adaptations can can lead eventually to speciation. Yeah, no kidding. I, I'm just sitting here just thinking of other things in the back of my mind, but we've, we probably talked about this too much. So anyway, if, if we, if we talk about this and we just start to consider and just let people know that these are long time scales, this isn't something you're seeing after days or weeks, but over long, long time scales, um, there's a lot of things that can change over those time periods. But like you said, I imagine, I imagine folks are getting tired of hearing about this. Uh, but well, sadly, I don't know, maybe, but yeah, we, we ramble sometimes. And I, I think that we're 
we're trying to do better just so everybody knows we are we are making that that diligent effort to try not to ramble so much because obviously Daryl's the rambler of the two of us yeah, yeah I gotta stop talking about my college days because <laughs> I forget my kids might listen to this podcast anyway um so on that pleasant note um let's let's wrap this up this is a complicated topic it's sometimes a, a touchy topic so let's kind of wrap it up but the the whole idea of these genetic adaptations this is how things evolve this is how speciation occurs really interesting stuff so i hope you enjoyed listening to it it's probably a good time for me to say you should follow our podcast uh I don't know where you find it. I post it every all the time on Facebook, but uh, I'm still learning the whole system. Yeah, they, can, the, they can follow it on their favorite podcast app. It should be available on, on the vast majority of all of the major ones, the Googles, the Spotify's, the Apples. That's why carry I keep on. you around. Yeah, so, carry on, sorry. Anyway, what, what I'm more proficient in than podcasting is keeping up with a Facebook page. Um, we also do a, a Twitter page, although it's not as popular, but it's a great resource. Um, Anyway, once the dust settles, we'll we'll let you know on Facebook and Twitter what our next topic will be. Yeah. And of course, there's always the website at wildlifefreeu.com so you can get information on upcoming webinars. And uh, of course, you can always reach out to us if you've got any interest in like a group event or anything. You know, we can we can cater as well. So yeah, one thing. Uh, sorry, Go. I'm going to interrupt you again, but because that's what I do today. That's what uh, I do. That's that is your knack. That's why I said for me, I said it's what I did today because I'm just going to make a rare uh, moment here. Um, you had mentioned that on Facebook, that's that's where we're going to also put the the next week's topic. So I know you and I um, on the phone at, at a different time had kind of kicked around. Do we want to? Do we even want to introduce the idea of if you got a question, you can always yes to us. And all right, you talk about that. Then. Yeah, what we'll do is we will select a topic for next week's podcast really shortly unless it's unless it's something like that utah cougar podcast which was you know we got to do this right now because it's it's burning up the the social media sites uh we'll try to announce the next podcast like days or potentially a week in advance i don't know if we'll get that good but it'll be many days in advance and so when we post that on our Facebook page, what we'd love to do is love to get some of you listeners asking us questions on the front end. If you know the topic, if there's something that interests you about that particular topic, uh, we'll gladly mention you and, and hopefully address your question on there. But so glad you brought that up, Steph. Yeah. And this is us. Uh, we'll say we'll do our very best because, you know, uh, I have no idea how many questions we'll get. We might get one. And then and <laughs> in a perfect world, we could pretend that we're actually really popular and we could get, you know, hundreds. And we, so we could, but yeah, anyway, we could, we could yeah, we could also lie and get one and say we got hundreds. So that's a good point. Yeah, we could do that. So anyway, but, but yeah. we won't, we won't. But oh, and anyway. yeah, like Daryl said, wildlife for you, um, all spelled out wildlife for you um, on either Facebook or dot com uh, or on Twitter. So, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of my catch phrases for our whole wildlife for you uh, educational movement is just to get people to learn more about wildlife. Because truly, when it comes to these animals, when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge is their existence in many, many cases. So mm -hmm. stay informed, uh, stay educated, stay 
interested, stay passionate. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Steph, for joining me tonight. Always, always. Night, D. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Yeah.